Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight's one of my favorite uh, uh, subjects. It's the uh, Journal Club, uh, once again here with Dr. Bill Weiss from uh, The Ohio State University. Um, and with me is my co-host is uh, Dr. Jeff Elliott. He's a tech service manager for uh, Balcom Corporation. And our featured guest tonight is Dr. Michelle Watio from uh, Wisconsin. Going to be talking about um, enteric emissions and, and how to control those uh, by breed, impact of forages, concentrates, those kinds of things. Correct. All right. right. Awesome. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by the Keisher line of chelated minerals. Keisher and Keisher Plus deliver proven and consistent bioavailability to maximize performance and a no-frills pricing approach for greater profitability. Visit balchem.com to learn more. Bill, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you come about selecting this paper? Hey, well, th thanks, Scott. It's good to be back. Uh, a couple of things. One, I'm a nutritionist, so I always want nutrition papers. Mm -hmm. This has a breed uh, treatment in it, and I get questions a lot about jerseys, and this this addresses some of those. So it's a comparison of breeds of a jersey and a Holstein, and then methane is a is a hot topic now, and it's not just environmental. Methane has a lot of energy, so you're losing energy to the cow. So I think it's both a, a current topic, but again, this breed effect is what really got my attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there, we're going to concentrate on one paper, but there's a series, so there'll be some other papers posted. We're going to concentrate on uh, the one entitled, I'm going to shorten the title a little bit, but it's on enteric methane, lactation, digestibility, metabolism of nitrogen and energy from Holsteins and Jerseys fed two levels of forage NDF with from alfalfa or corn silage. And Michelle, if you want to just first kind of introduce the the other authors on this, a little bit of their background, then we'll get into the paper. So. Sure. So um, the first author is uh, Elias Udin. He, he was a graduate student in my lab a few years back, and um, he's now actually a faculty at South Dakota State University. Um, and he does tremendous work. Um, this is why we have this whole series of paper, because he's very, very sharp and um, did an excellent, hardworking, and, and very bright. Um, Omar Santana is the second author. He is a scientist at INIFAP in Mexico, and he just happened to be in the labs when the experiment was taking place. And he also conducted some, um, some measurement on those animals while we were conducting that experiment um, that is being processed now and hopefully will be submitted soon. And he looked at the feeding behavior of the Holstein and the Jerseys. Uh, Kent Weigel was the, he's our departmental chairs and he was involved in the project in part because of the Jersey and the Holstein, so the breed effect. He is a geneticist and so he has an interest in the breed differences. And uh, myself as a professor in the department, um, I'm the one who tried to, you know, put the, the project together and write the grants to get the fund to support everyone to do the work. So we'll just start here with um, kind of what why, why you picked the treatments you did, why did you decide to study um, forage source and forage fiber concentration, and what was your initial hypothesis? Yes. So, well, again, we looked at three different main factors here, the breed, the forage level, and the forage source. 
So the interest for the breed was really because there were earlier papers um, suggesting that maybe the Jersey animal, the Jersey cow, might have been more environmentally friendly. When you look at their environmental impact per unit of cheese yield, and so that was one of our major motivations. Say, okay, let's let's look at um, you know the Jerseys versus the Holstein in terms of some of the environmental performance. And we know methane is one of the major contributors to carbon footprint. So that was you know step number one: measure and compare methane emission from those two breeds. So that was a motivation for for Holstein versus Jersey. The level of forage. It's actually in the experiment was not just the level of forage. It, it was a substitution for the forage and the F in the diets. So in other words, we wanted to replace this equal amount of NDF from alfalfa silage versus NDF from alfalfa silage. Why did we want to do that? Well, again, because, you know, we have a big trend in, in many parts of the United States and Wisconsin is, is not an exception where you see producers, you know, um, in, uh, incrementing the acreage of corn, oftentimes at the expense of the alfalfa. So what are the consequences from a nutritional perspective, but also we wanted to put that into a, a more environmental context perspective as well, because, you know, alfalfa is perennial, so it stays there in the ground for a few years, uh, covers the ground, less soil erosion, you know, possibly carbon sequestration, whereas corn typically is a row crop. It may be associated with actual loss of CO2, you know, from the soil rather than capture of the CO2. So at the end of the day, we wanted to look at, at that. Um, and then, you know, again, there was the, the legume versus grass aspect, you know, alfalfa legume, corn or grass. And we know that they kind of behave differently in the rumen and the, the lower tract. So we wanted to take a fresh look at that. And then, um, and then the, the, the level of forage was really tied back to some of the earlier work that we did where we actually, you know, found that, you know, more forage in the diet, more NDF in the diet yielded, you know, more methane. And so, again, part of the logic here was to look at uh, whether there was some sort of interaction between the type of fiber, the level of the fiber on the methane emission, and obviously the cow performance and the digestibility and all those different parameters. And again, not not re de real detailed, but on the mm -hmm. can you give us the ratio, the alfalfa corn silage ratio? Yes. And the forage NDF levels you yes. chose. So we had rations that were formulated for either 19 or 24 percent of forage NDF. You know, and so and then the alfalfa silage, corn silage NDF ratio was a 30-70, right? So 30-70 in 19 or 30-70 in 24. And um, and so that amounted to 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 make it to, to simplify things, if you will, to either feeding either a 55% forage diet or a 68% forage diet. Now remember, one of the little details that are, are is important to remember in looking at this paper is that those animals were primiparous cows, all of them, and so we were not dealing with you know mature cows; we were dealing with first lactation cows. And. And maybe before we get into dive into the details a little more, can you explain how the enteric methane was measured? Sure. It's the uh, yep. green feed system? Yes. So the green feed system is um, probably the most common ways these days to measure methane um, because of the flexibility of the technique. But the basic um, protocol is to have the animal and uh, placing per head into a relatively close space 
and we do that by um, giving her a little um, incentive to do that, you know, a little concentrate falling in front of her nose. And so she's going to get in there. And if she stays there long enough, we can measure the airflow coming in, you know, around the nose of the cow. And then, and, um, and then there is a detector for the, amount, the concentration of methane in that air. And so, so we can basically measure airflow in time concentration of methane and then look at airflow out and concentration of methane. And based on that, you can then figure out how much methane was emitted from between point A and point B, with point A being, you know, outside of the unit, point A being, you know, the cows in the unit. Mm -hmm. uh, May it make sense? Uh, how long uh, would a measurement period uh, the methanes last. So that's a good question because still, you know, last week there's so much misconception out there. I had people just thinking that cow actually farted, right? Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. to make it very clear. Yeah. They, they, that's they, what they, the media tells us though. Yes, yeah. yes. They irritate <laughs> or they belch, what are yeah. the two? Yeah. That's okay, yeah. but they don't, I mean, they do fart. And actually this is one of the limitations <laughs> of the green feed is just it measure the methane from the rumen, entheric, but it doesn't measure the methane from the lower yeah. intestinal tract so then there is some methane produced in the colon and in intestine the large intestine and you know i mean earlier research indicated you know five to ten percent of the total strong. methane of the animal very comes strong. out the back end but so it means 90 95 percent come at the front end of the animal right, right. um oh. so yeah that that's was um I'm sorry, I kind of lost track of the, the original question. I know. Yeah, so how long, yes. on average, are they yes. actually in the box and yeah. your measurements? So for one single measurement, they need to stay only a few, a few, um, you know, five to six seconds. So very short amount of time. However, because of the fact that irritation is something that comes and goes, you know, the burping, and then nothing happened, just breathing. And there's some methane in the breath, but then there is another burp, you know, a few minutes later, and you cannot predict when those comes out. So there is a lot of variation in the rate at which the methane comes out of the animal. So this is why you need to go back and do measurements at least 10, 12 times over the 24-hour clock in order to capture, you know, any cyclic, you know, um, methane. So each cow? Oh, yes. That's, yes, yeah, imagine that for, for the... Uh, okay. 24 animals that we had there, um, you know, we did methane measurements every three hours over a three-day period in order to cover the 24-hour clock at least once. Okay. Yeah. So that's why you need to have good working, hard-working graduate students <laughs> and a whole team of people doing that. And so how do you know that uh, the time that they're in this enclosed mm -hmm. box and you entice them in there with a little bit of feed, do you know that's representative of the rest of the time when they're not, uh, when their head is not in that box? It would seem to me it might be different. Uh, well, there must be variation, yeah. And some work has been done in the earlier days of using that, you know, green feed unit, you know, when people were testing it. And uh, so, and, and there was, you know, m measurement done for every, every two hours or every three hours or every four hours. And the way that the scientists have figured out, you know, the best protocol to address that question, you know, what, what could happen in between is that they basically look at very complete data set, okay, and look at, okay, let's calculate the average emission of those, that animal when you've done like 24 measurements, right? And then they say, let's take, you know, two measurements out and redo the calculation and see, you know, if the average has changed, right? And so by paring it down like that, they kind of figure out that a minimum of eight measurements per day 
uh, give you a re re representative yeah. estimates of the total uh, methane emission of yeah. the animal in one day. Yeah, yeah. good. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yep. Uh, does does meth? Did you ever measure this over time, like two days on treatment, and then you measure it two weeks later? Does it stay pretty constant day to day? That that's a good question. So in I three, this is some of the recommendation from the manufacturer is to try to balance the the measurement within a day with the measurement across days. Um, I don't know of any experiment that actually went back and did it two weeks later on the same treatment because you know how we, we run experiment, right? But but it seems pretty pretty, you know, we should be pretty confident to say that those measurements are quite reliable, actually. Yes, but again, you need a combination of within days and across day measurement over a three four day period to make sure that you you get good numbers. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it so and again what. The way that the green feed really works is that um, so the company, the company, the, all your data is processed by the the C log South Dakota University, uh, not university, South Dakota company, and uh, so they process the data for you, and so they, they really have the expertise, you know, to to kind of look at outliers, anything that went wrong with the units, because all this, all this goes through the internet, uh, so there's some sort of quality control right. to the unit right there yeah. that you know right. give you uh, you know. Um, confidence that the numbers are reliable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just had one more question on the diet, and I always ask this: forage NDF level changed. Yes. Which means something else has to change too. That's right. That's so right. So what? What else changed? So yeah, I did have to refresh my memory this morning, uh, going back this paper. So there were two ways we tried to keep the starch relatively constant across all the diet, 23 percent more or less, and we also tried to keep the total NDF constant across the diet. To keep the total NDF constant across the diet, we played with soy hulls, okay. a non-forage yeah. fiber, right? Okay. And actually, this is very good, Bill, that you're asking the question, because oftentimes we interpret our result and report them at yeah. the effect of it's, what we wanted to change, exactly, but it's always it's a, a substitution. substitution. Exactly. So, you know, you can also interpret your, your result as, you know, the, the, yeah. the thing that have changed, yep. you know, as you formulated exactly. the diet. So, so, um, so, so the, the low forage diet had a lot of soy hulls to bring it to the level of the high total forage diet. And the other feeding region that we played with um, was the corn grain, mm -hmm. right? Um, because keep, if we had to keep right, the starch, to, to keep the, the starch up. constant, okay. yes, yeah. So, so when we had um, the alfalfa silage based diet, obviously we had a lot more corn grain in there compared to the corn yeah. um, diet, corn yeah. silage diet. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. using soy hulls to do this, I think it's the best. It's always a compromise, but yes. I think that's the best. Starch can affect fiber digestion, so you took that variable right. out. Yeah, you balance for starch. So I think the diets actually were a good choice. Yeah. So thanks. Mm -hmm. And as I guess into the the results here, let's just start with what people want, and that'd be let's start with production. Yep. So yep. kind of summarize the yeah. The, and start. I'd like to keep the breed to the a little bit Center. later, but. Okay. Kind of just the overall effects, and then I do want to discuss breed quite a bit. Sure. But. So, you know, I mean, we didn't revolutionize science yeah. you know, <laughs> with our result here. You know, there's been a number of, you know, Jersey versus Holstein, you know, anal studies in the past. And for the main part, you know, obviously, Jerseys are lighter than Holsteins. They ate less and they produce less. Um, the 
you know, in terms of milk, but obviously the milk was higher concentration of fat, higher concentration of protein, um, and and uh, and the efficiency, so the conversion of feed to milk was there was no breed difference. Um, so yes, that's the the very big picture there in terms of the the performance of those animals. And then on treatments, what kind of summarize the production responses to the diet treatments then? There was not much of a difference either in no, terms of performance. There was, right? Their intake changed, as you'd expect, with yep. the higher forage diet. They ate a little less. Yes. Um, but that was about but it. That, that was about it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. is that yeah. you know, a question I used to get a lot more than now, but is which is the best forage mix to feed? That was a right uh, and independent of agronomic issues or land issues. Yes. Yes. This would say it. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. You know, um, some of you may remember my uh, the name of my um, mentor, Larry Satter, oh, yeah, yeah. and Larry Satter did some work, you know, so quite long, a number of years ago. ago. Yeah. And I remember Larry's basic practical recommendation is, you know, at least one third of either corn silage or alfalfa silage, and you know, the rest can be the other the other forage, and you'll be fine. In yeah. some of the earlier yeah. work seems to indicate that cows have real good ways to adapt to a wide range of you know mixture of yeah. corn silage of yeah. silage and you know these cows would be produced i remember reading those papers from mm -hmm. larry mm -hmm. you know that was a long time ago and their production levels were substantially less yes and so yes. this says you know, it's, it's even with higher producing it's still less. feed what you can grow is probably what it says that's, so. that's right that's right okay. yes mm -hmm. and you know, uh, the other important measurement, well, let's get to methane first okay. and then we'll get back to this. So what did you find on methane between uh, diet and breed effects? Okay, so in terms of the breed, again, um, if you're not familiar, you know, the methane that the cow produced per day is pretty much directly related to how much feed she consumed. And it makes sense, right? The more the cow eat, the more fermentation there is in the rumen, the more methane you're going to produce. So amount of feed consumed is factor number one. Then obviously as nutritionists, we're really interested in looking at diet composition and how it may affect methane emission. But so in terms of the breed differences, the fact that the Jerseys were eating less than the Holsteins, when you look at the methane per day, I do remember those numbers, um, you know, there was like 380 grams in the Jerseys, but 450 yeah, grams in the Holsteins, and it was a significant difference. Yeah. So, so grams per day of methane, you know, per animal, the Jersey, n not surprisingly, was producing less methane than the, the, the Holsteins. But, you know, those of us working a lot with methane emission, um, we talk about methane production, which is what I just talked about. The denominator is the day, right? Methane is the n numerator. But we also look at what we call the methane yield which is the amount of methane divided by the dry matter intake, okay? And there was no difference there. So, which would suggest that, you know, the, the microbiome, the type of microbes that lives in the rumen of a Holstein or a Jersey doesn't make a difference in terms of methane emission, right? And then what a lot of, um, a big part of the industry is really interested in is the methane per unit of milk produced by the cow and that's what we call methane intensity. And again, there was no difference in that measure between the Holsteins and the Jersey. So, so in a way you can say that um, um, 
well, I don't know what you can say, except again, if, if, if you get bigger animals, you're going to get more methane, but those bigger animals tend to produce more milk. And when you look at the methane per unit of milk, the breed doesn't make a difference. How'd you standardize that? So you're comparing apples to apples, right? So within the Jersey population, you've got very high producing, very efficient animals, low yep. producing. Low. And then, so when you say there's no difference between Jerseys and Holsteins, how do you know you were comparing something that's more apples to apples other than just the, the breed difference? Well, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. And I don't know if I have a straight answer for you, ex except that, you know, you need to design experiment like this one, right? Where you randomly pick animals from, you know, from one breed. And I'm sure, so we, we had 12 jerseys and 12 Holsteins. You know, we, we just hope that on average, those 12 animals from each breed represented the breed as a whole, right? That's all we can do. Well, in what, the what was like the that. average milk for the, for the two breeds, just their ballpark average milk yield for this. So that was, uh, you know, 20, let me see, look at it here. So the Holstein Premier Periscals, right? Yep. 33 kilos, and the Jersey was 21 kilos of so milk per day. Yeah. 50 and 70 yeah. pounds, yeah. basically. Yeah. So yeah. pretty average. Pretty average, okay. yeah, yeah. But, but in terms of going a little deeper in your question about the, the so the methane emission is only one of the factors, um, you know, that affect the overall carbon footprint, right? right. Um, we know that methane is the single most important contributor to the milk carbon footprint, but there are many other factors as well, right? So the efficiency of the animal is not related only to how much methane the animal produced per day, as Bill said, right? Methane is an energy law. It contains energy. So as the cow breathes out that methane, she's breathing out energy. Well, you know, as a nutritionist, we would like her to use that energy to make milk, right? Because that's what we, we're all about in nutrition. Um, but, the, you know, there are many other factors next to, you know, the, the type of microbes that produce the methane that can influence the efficiency of the cow, right? So on, on this methane thing, and this, this experiment, because the results were similar, it, it doesn't matter that very much, but how should we express methane? <laughs> per unit of milk component, per unit of dry matter intake, or per cow, per day? What's the, so you, you're hitting, what's the right way? You're hitting on something here, Bill. Um, and I, I'll tell you, as a good as a good university professor else and academician, you know what's the right answer? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> I do know it. <laughs> it depends. It depends. But but I think fundamentally that's the right answer. It depends. But it but it's very very important that the dairy industry as a whole decide, you know, which way we really want to go. There's no question that because of the the um, media and the consumer concerns we look at the methane intensity the carbon footprint right so which is the amount of greenhouse gas per unit of milk that the consumer buy because that's what the consumer wants to know right what's the the carbon footprint of me buying the milk if if you're a nutritionist i mean you might be interested in the methane yield, right? Because you want to decrease the loss of methane per unit of organic matter fermented in the rumen because you will make the cow more efficient in that way, right? Um, but, you know, that question is very fundamental to me. And I think we need to have more discussion as an industry whether, you know, we should be trying to minimize maybe the methane per cow per day versus the methane per milk. And we actually are working right now on a manuscript where, with the data in part of this data set. Um, 
the, the, the relationship, the, the, the degree to which those three measurements met, you know, so having day in the denominator, having milk in the denominator, or having dry matter intake in the denominator, how closely are they related? There are some correlation yeah, be between those, by. right? You, as you would expect, but it's not straightforward either. No, no. So, so I think what it means is that, you know, again, for geneticists, you know, that could make a big difference, right? No. Whether the goal is to decrease the methane per cow or decrease the methane per kilos of no. milk. Right. You know, on the on yeah. the per cow thing, you know, just turn her dry and you'll reduce methane production. So, well, that's another thing that's, I think that we found in, yeah. the, in the when we try to integrate all this data into a, a typical herd. Um, we, we found that, um, you know, the reproduction rate of the herd, and so your proportion of dry cow yeah, and heifers that, you know, produce methane but no milk yeah. can have a big effect also on your overall carbon footprint of yeah. the milk coming out of right. the farm, right? Yeah. And, you know, like you mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. they eat more, they almost always produce more methane, but if they eat more or eat more digested fiber, yes. they also usually produce more methane. Yes. And you didn't find that here, I guess. That's right. That's what right. What do you think's going on? Well, I, you know, it's it's very hard to do those experiments um, where you really look at the effect of the digestibility of that fiber, right? In this experiment, we just look at the type of fiber from off of a silage or from corn silage and then the amount of fiber, right? But we were not able to look directly at the effect of the digestibility of that fiber. But we, we tried and we, it, as I said, it's very difficult to, to really do uh, an experiment that doesn't have too many confounding yeah. factors, right, to do that. But, but the logic would tell us, as you say, that if you have a more digestible fiber, you would get more energy to the animal. That means, you know, the animal can produce more milk, but you would also have more more methane. Yeah. But with the overall hypothesis, when you look at the trends, that the benefits would outweigh the, the negative. So you would have more more milk than you would have more methane, yeah. and therefore you would make the cow more efficient yeah. that way. That but, was kind of the hypothesis. Yeah. We had. But that gets back to how do we measure it? Are we looking at yield? Or are we looking at that intensity? Yes. And, yes. and what do we need to do? So. Right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And another thing you measured, which I wish more people would do, is that's just manure output, not 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 dry matter output, but manure output. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And again, that's you have to handle manure. You don't handle dry matter at the yes. farm. What yes. what did you find there? Again, with we know cow, Holstein cows are going to produce more manure. Yes. But with just on the diet effect, yes. on manure output. So, as I recall, again, there was very little difference in the composition of the manure due to breed, but there was a difference in the composition of the manure due to the level of fiber yeah. in the diets, not the source, but the level of fiber, which, which kind of makes sense, again, as a nutritionist, right? Um, so more fiber, you know, in probably means more fiber out, um, and so then you got a manure that has a different composition, and if you know you think about what's going on in your manure pit being an extension of what's going on in the digestive system of the cow, if you have more of residual digestible fiber in there, you're going to produce more methane out, you know, out of the manure pit. So yes. that, that's kind of what I mean. If we feed more more digestible fiber, the cow, so she produces more methane, but then. If we don't, is it just, do we just transfer the methane from the cow to the manure? To a certain degree, I think we do, to a certain degree, yeah. So if we do, and that's one of the, 
difference again between the high producing animal and the low producing animal right we have a loss of digestibility in high producing animal due to high rate of passage so their manure is more fermentable Mm -hmm. And therefore, you would expect more ma more That's greenhouse right. gas coming out of that manure than if you have the manure of the dry cow, right? That really yeah. extract all the energy they yeah. can out of that fiber as yeah. it goes through the track. So I think that's some, you know, we look at as nutritious as we concentrate on the cow. And, and one of your papers, you're starting to concentrate on the farm. And yes. that's, that yes. is the next step. But yes. yeah. Yep. So if we can back up just a little bit, mm -hmm. one of the papers you quoted in the introduction was I think it was Toma from 2013. Correct. And you mentioned there were three major on-farm greenhouse gas yes. effects. Yes. Feed production, enteric methane, manure management. Correct. And that was 70%. Correct. I, it made me wonder, that was 2013. Uh -huh. So almost 10 years later, how much have we improved, maybe in feed production, Yes. as far as more efficient tractors, yes. let's say, or... Um, now we've got manure digesters and maybe we're feeding the cow more efficient. Yeah. I wonder how that number has changed in 10 years. And Good, good question. I, and, and I don't think I have a very straight answer to you, but, but here's how we will answer the question. I, I don't think the numbers have changed that much when you look at the big picture, right? Yeah. Yeah, it still may be 70% because of, yes. even though it's gotten, even though it's improved. Right, yeah. right. Yes, and, and the way I would say this is that when people started to say, okay, we need to reduce methane emission, and I use the word emission here, and I don't like it, but that's what, because it's vague. What do you mean, right? Because based on the conversation we had here, for me, emission doesn't mean anything. I need to know if you're talking about production, intensity, or, or um, yield, right? So what's the denominator, going back to that? And, and I think... Um, so those three numbers, so, so in, in terms of trying to reduce, let's talk about the intensity, right? So the methane per kilos of milk. We have more than, you know, 160 years of land grant research, you know, very focused nutrition and biochemistry and all this that help us make cow producing a lot of milk. We just started in the last 20, 30 years to really pay attention to methane. We know much better how to increase the denominator increase milk production, then we know how to reduce the numerator, the, met, the methane that comes out of the cow. So when, so what's the fastest way to increase, right? The ratio is being make cow more produce milk. more milk. And so from that perspective, you know, the benefits that we've had in the last 10 years or so, I think have been associated with producers feeding their cows better, maintaining health, you know, and all these kind of things that, you know, maximize the, the genetic potential of the animal. And that's to everyone's benefit. There's no question about that in, in my mind. Yeah. Now, focusing for a moment on the denominator, on the numerator, 10, 15 years ago, when people asked me, so what can we do to reduce the methane from the cow? I said, yeah, I have one solution for you. Kill the cow. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, yeah, yeah. That you was know it. 50 million years of evolution yeah. to make the cow the cow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, use fiber, it comes at a little cost, right? Yeah. The methane. Yeah. You know what I, I mean, know, right? Yeah. And so, but now, you know, thanks to science and research and discoveries, there are now more and more on the market, on coming on the market, feed additive, you know, um, that can make a big difference in terms of how much methane comes out of the cow. Um, so, so, we've made a lot of progress. 
but I don't think those ratios have changed fundamentally. The, the methane emission from the cow herself is still the single most important contributor to the overall carbon footprint. But I think we need to pay attention to the manure and we need to pay attention to the feed production. And I think rereading some of the paper this morning to you know get myself you know gear up to share all those thoughts with you guys here. Um, it seems like some of the data that we collected seems to indicate that, you know, again, feed additive aside, when you look at just methane emission from the cow and the variation that you could expect around a mean value, right? And then you look at the, meth, the, the greenhouse gas emission coming out of the manure storage and processing, which is methane, but also nitrous oxide. There's a lot of variation there, much wider variation. And then you look at the variation in emission in greenhouse gas from the field where the feeds are being produced, where you grow your corn or your alfalfa, and it's another magnitude of variation there. So when you, you know, as a producer, I think if you really want to, to make an, you know, a true impact on reducing the emission from your farm, the cow is important, but you need to also focus on the management of that manure and the management of your crops. The big picture thing here, right? Mm -hmm. On uh, mm -hmm. excluding the environmental effects, you know, meth yeah. methane is an energetic loss. Yeah, but it's you know seven percent of DE maybe. Yes. Um, do you think we can make a big enough difference for us to actually to see an, an energetic effect? Not again ignoring the environment, but if we could reduce methane a reasonable amount, will will we ever see that in? More milk, more milk, more more efficiency. Some some measure is it? Is our measurement sensitive enough for that? Because it it is a it's a loss, it's, but it's yes, a small it, loss. It's a small loss. I agree. Um, I think you know it could be the case, but only in the situation where you have such high producing animal that every calories count. Mm -hmm. Right in that situation, it should make sense that reducing the methane and, you know, the other loss, right, that we don't talk much in this paper, but we also did the measurement is the, the urea and urine. the urine, right, yeah. which is another energy loss that yeah. we have there. So, yeah, in my, in my works over the last few years, focusing on these two losses, um, in and of themselves, I don't think they, you know, as you said, our me measurement technique are not there to really pick those small differences. But when you put those two losses together, the methane on the one hand and the urea in the urine on, on the other hand, then you can start getting, you know, to a number where we can more confidently say, yes, you know, it make a difference if you, you know, pay attention to the protein, pay attention to your carbohydrates or your, you know, so that you, you minimize your carbon and your nitrogen yeah. loss from the animal. And, and have that, you know, make the animal um, produce, you know, use those nutrients towards milk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, this may be a situation where people just have to believe the numbers. And yeah. you do the math. We say we've saved these calories. We might not be able to measure where they went, but. But we know we are the, going the, in the right direction. The first law of thermodynamics yeah. says we've saved energy. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. You, you also did another paper, and I, again, just briefly on this one, where you looked at RDP level. Yes. And methane. Yes. Can you briefly again just kind of summarize what you found? Did RDP have a, a big effect on methane production? Yes. So this was a few years back and, and we had an interest at that stage. So so the idea, right, was that the the bugs, if I can use that name, um, that produce methane I was caught myself to call them bacteria, they're not bacteria, <laughs> right? 
but thanks to the microbiologists who just keep revising their you know taxonomy of you know what is a, uh, microbes yes. they're called archaea right so remember that archaea is what produce methane and and um but we know that those are some of the most primitive right microorganisms in the rumen and so and those most primitive microorganisms are using some of the simpler chemical component ammonia right as a nitrogen source uh, and then you know the, the 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 very simple carbohydrate energy sources so it was logical to us to say well can we formulate diets where we're going to really try to alter the source of those very readily available you know carbohydrates and the rdp so the source of nitrogen available to this primitive form of bacteria to see if we can you know kind of knock them off and and um, reduce methane emission um, but again, it, it was, I think, um, the overall result was that RDP didn't have impact whatsoever the methane okay. emission. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the source of carbohydrate, yes. So using starch or using dextrose, which is what you use yeah. in that f yeah. paper, made a difference in terms of the methane. But no. the RDP versus RDP, no. Yeah. And we had other work since then that kind of confirmed that crude protein in the yes. level in the it's, diet it's had not, no effect on methane. I had one question I forgot to answer, ask here on the previous paper, yeah. and this is on digestibility. You measured digestibility in yeah. that paper, in yeah. vivo, not in vitro, yeah. and it was higher for corn silage, mm -hmm. and it was also, but it was lower for the high fiber diets. Yes, what, what that is, was a good a puzzling, you know, yeah. when the student yeah. came and showed yeah, me the data, puzzling he, to me he, he almost <laughs> cried, you know, so this, we got it all wrong. <laughs> um, I think this is where you need to pay attention to exactly how the diet were formulated, that's and that's the soy hull yeah. effect. That's what we had there. So I think. If, if you would have done, a lot of people would have taken out starch or put Right. Change. So, what do you think if you if you would have done that? I I think what you did is the way I would have formulated diets. Uh -huh. But if you would have replaced forage fiber with starch, do you think you would have found what's more or less expected? Yes, exactly. That's what I think yeah. we would have seen. Yeah. 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 So again, you know, starch is you know the the such you know goodies for those microbes, and so you gain on the energy side, and you gain on the protein side because you got all of um, you know microbial protein yeah. production with starch that I don't think you have with the dextrose, yeah. and so That's yeah. Right. I think these yeah. titles ought to start using the word substitution I know you, rather I, than the effect of this. I am 100% with you there, definitely. Because, so, again, yeah. you forget, you that might is, think this is what you're changing, but you're always changing something else. Yes, too, so. yes, yes. But that gives you food for thoughts, right, yep. for the oh, next yeah. word. Exactly, right? exactly. exactly. It's yeah. an important decision when you're changing yep. something. What you yes. change is it's a very important decision. Yeah, and we were intrigued because when we looked back to this first study, um, just, you know, play with the data, try to understand what's going on. We actually found a high, you know, linear relationship between the level of soy hull in the diet and the level of methane emission. Yeah. And we said, well, could, could the soy hull be part of, a, you know, what we're seeing here? Yeah. And again, I don't have the straight answer yeah. to that, but, you know, it's, it's you know. If it's, you know, highly digestible, it should produce it methane. It should produce and, methane, and, exactly. And it's all, um, essentially all cellulose. Yes.
Yes. So maybe cellulose, hemicellulose has some effect. Yeah. Well, let's call last call then. Uh -huh. And uh, with that, what I'd like you guys to do is uh, give us uh, one or two key takeaways from the conversation today that a uh, consulting nutritionist, feed company nutritionist can take back to the dairy. And uh, Bill, why don't we start with you? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Nitrisure, Precision Release Nitrogen. Nitrisure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash nitrosure. Bill, why don't we start with you? Well, to me, the biggest thing here, I know this was about methane, but the thing I found most intriguing was the almost total lack of diet by breed interactions which means you know, we have a ton of data on Holsteins, which means maybe a lot of that is directly applicable to Jersey. So that's, to me, was the, a major finding, mm -hmm. was the mm -hmm. lack of something. Okay. Yep. And then why don't you add to your answer uh, a little bit about what's the next step in your research? Um, to me, the next step in the research is to try to develop the tools because, you know, you asked a question about TOMA 2013, where are we today? You know, Toma in 2013, for example, did not look at biodigestion and how that can contribute to reducing the environmental impact of a dairy farm, you know, and some work that has been done here at UW-Madison by our engineer colleagues seems to indicate that biodigestion can go a long way to offset your methane emission of your cow. Um, Carbon sequestration in the soil, you know, depending on how you manage your your, your cropping systems, uh, can also have a big impact. And I'm sure it's no secret to everyone, right, that agronomists have a heyday these days yeah. because you know everyone's mm -hmm. throwing money at them to go and do carbon sequestration in the soil. Um, to me, I think we need to 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 place you know our work on the cow in the context of right the the overall impact on the farm. And, and not just the, the negative, but also the positive of, you know, what dairy farming is doing for the farmer, for the consumer, for the, for the local economy, and this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think this is, you know, we need to be rooted in, in understanding how dairy contribute to society more than just milk. Yeah, right. And then a, 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 a couple key takeaways then for nutritionists out there? Well, I agree with Bill. I think, you know, uh, there was a lot of work to find, come up with not a lot of differences. <laughs> <laughs> but that's sometimes that's what science is about, yeah. right? Okay. Um, and so I, I'm fully in agreement with Bill that at the end of the day, and we have some other data coming along here looking at feeding behavior and um, they, we didn't see much of a difference between the jerseys and the, the Holstein. So yeah. one main takeaway. The, the other thing that I would challenge to people to, to think about in terms of the takeaway is, um, again, in the big, big, big picture, one of the reasons that we did the, the low and high forage diet it, with the assumption that high forage diets would be diet that you formulated if you can be more self-sufficient on your farm, rely less on purchase feed, which has its own issues yep. right yep. and so again placing the nutrition in the context of the management of the entire farm rather than putting the nutrition always just in the context of making the cow produce more milk i think to me is kind of the way of the future well, and i think that goes back to really where we started mm -hmm. talking about 
halids or alfalfa or corn silage. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. It really wasn't a big difference, but yep. it's yeah. a lot of things going right. to that decision. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great input, gentlemen. You know, I failed to mention during the introduction that we are recording here at the World Dairy Expo. So if you hear some extraneous noises in the background, that's we're here in the booth <laughs> at the Balcom booth at the World Dairy Expo. Bill, um, you know, great job today. You, Thank you. you. Did a good job. You got a great guest, a great paper yeah, review. I, so. I think people are going to enjoy this one. Uh, Thank you, Michelle. Great job. You're a great guest. I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today, and you're you're welcome to come back anytime here to the oh, Real Science so Exchange. Yeah, we're. Uh, Always open, always having a good time. So well, thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation, and it's very stimulating to, yeah. to uh, you know discuss those papers in a very open and practical way. Yeah, very well. Thanks. And always, we uh, we appreciate our our loyal audience. We thank you. Thank you for coming to spend some time with us here once again. We hope you learned something. I hope you had a little bit of fun, and I hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour, and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.